Just before we get started, the Second Act Podcast would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on Treaty 7 land inhabited by the Blackfoot Nations. This includes the Siksika, Pikani, and Kainai. We would also like to acknowledge the Sutsina and Stony Nakoda First Nations, as well as the Métis Nations and all people who make their home on Treaty 7 land in southern Alberta. But now that we've paid respects to people that were here before us, let's start the pod. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Second Act Podcast, and today's guest is Sabrina Morgan. Interesting story Sabrina has uh, from, you know, being a meth addict or using meth anyways from the age of 13 on, but never never as a party drug, um, only to to perform, you know, at the, at the level that she expected of herself and the people around her. But I, I don't think anyone ever expects it to stay like that. And boy, oh boy, did did that kind of a lifestyle catch up with her later in her life. And you hear a lot of stories about people who are in and out of the justice system and don't really use their time in prison for its intended purpose of like rehabilitating, reflecting. And so it's it's really refreshing to hear a story of someone who went into prison and through like the being isolated from society, used the time and like used the time while she was in prison to become a better person and she dropped her drug habit and now she is just trying to make a normal life for herself after such a rough beginning. Yeah. I feel like that's probably the best takeaway is how much effort she put into making her life better while she was incarcerated. And I think she's reaping those rewards now, you know, life, life is a lot more fun now for her than it was before. She's got her, her daughter full time and, and she's, you know, trying to make a, a life for herself outside of being an ex con. She wants to talk to people about, what goes on in the criminal justice system and how how they may be able to make it better, uh, but it's it's a really good conversation. It's a long one. Sabrina has a lot of a lot of things she wants to talk about, and she does a really great job of articulating. So, without any further ado, let's kick it over to Sabrina Morgan. Thanks for having me. Interesting, uh, interesting life you've led to this point, and uh, and it's really interesting to sit down and talk to somebody who's got so much of it out there for public consumption. I, I found you on TikTok. And then we had we had a discovery call a couple of weeks ago, and you, you kind of gave me some places to go and look and and understand a little bit more about how you ended up where you are, which which we'll get into. But um, you you've lived quite a life uh, in not that many years on this earth. Yes, I have. I absolutely have. Um, I, I, you know, I grew up. I lived a great life. I had a great family. I showed horses. I had all kinds of opportunity wasn't afraid of anything at all and got into drugs. Um, I was afraid of gaining weight. I guess I had that fear for sure. Had anxiety, had, I wasn't afraid, but at the same time I had anxiety, but I, you know, I had a lot of little mental health things that were starting to kind of peek out. And when I really started worrying about my weight and everything, that's when, you know, things really started coming out, really started surfacing. And I started off with the diet pills and then I was dating a guy that was like, Hey, do you want to try meth? And I'm like, sure. Sounds like a great idea. Of course. I mean, why not? I can do all this stuff and not want to eat and lose all this weight. And I think it's interesting because I, you know, in talking to people, I didn't realize how many women jump into it with that and men too, for that matter. There's a lot of people that, you know, suffered with body dysmorphia and they were like, Oh, great. Meth sounds like a great idea. And so that's what I did. I got into that um, secretly. I wasn't like a part, I wasn't into going to parties and stuff like that. I was showing horses. I was gone on the weekends. I was just, I guess, just, you know, surviving basically. Um, I still managed to letter in academics in school. I ran cross country and was going to the barn every single day, working with my horses. Like that taught me a lot of, um, I mean, I worked I worked really hard with my horses. I had four of them and I was really particular and I, I spent hours with each one of them. And so that really taught me like this work ethic at the same time, I'm still getting high, but I've got this, this passion for these horses and do all this stuff. And so, um, that's kind of come back to me later in life, but, um, you know, you go through life, especially when you get into the drug world and you get into, some really traumatic relationships. Generally, when people are on drugs, they tend to be in really volatile 
ugly relationships and I had quite a few of those. And so, um, you know, my family didn't cause trauma, but me putting myself in situations and in relationships that brought so much trauma on, it was, it was really, you know, looking back, it's really interesting because it has such an impact on my life where I was like, I'm strong, you know, I'm good. I'll be able, I'm going to save, I'm going to save you. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, don't worry about it. I got this. I'm going to, I'm going to save you. Well, I needed to worry about myself, but, um, went to college, went to law school for a year. And at that time I was trying to stop doing drugs, which is not the course to take because, you know, trying to come off of drugs and go to law school, I was a mess. And I started having panic attacks and I started kind of losing my mind even further. And then I was drinking a whole bunch. And in my brain, being sober meant not doing meth. I was still doing cocaine and drinking, so I'm still a mess. Um, and then I did get sober. Um, I got into real estate. I did get off the drugs completely, and I had met my ex-husband. And But I was a drunk. I was a terrible drunk. Got into that marriage. He was an abusive person physically. He was mentally a mess and you know he caused a lot of trauma there but um i had my daughter i had been sober for a year and a half um and i was pregnant with her and it was interesting because right around the time i was ready to get divorced <laughs> but i was like okay i'm gonna stick it out so you know four years after she was born when she was four i i finally filed for divorce and you know i i'm not the type of person i i tend to live a double life i don't I can talk about things for hours with somebody and not tell them anything. And so my family was like, what's wrong with you? You know what I mean? Why are you getting divorced? Like, we didn't even know there was a problem. I'm like, well, yeah, I don't tell anybody about my problems. I just don't do it. And so anyway, I didn't, they weren't like incredibly supportive on the divorce thing. And my dad was like, you're going to go through, I mean, like custody, you, you know, you're going to have to share custody. And it was something I hadn't really can considered and it, the divorce wasn't the problem in, with me it was sharing custody which you know i don't i don't know that I'll, that that gets enough like you know focus because like you know you're like okay i'm done with this relationship but you have this child involved and then you get into this custody situation where it was i had her week on and he had her a week so on the weeks that i had off I lost my mind. Like I would completely lose it. It was like the wild, wild rest west around here. And you can only do that for so long before you lose it. So. So there's, there's a lot there um, that kind of to, to start and pick away at, to understand a little bit about, about some of the decisions that you made. I, I guess I'm a little curious. Um, what, what time, like what, about what years were, were these early teenage years where, um the eating disorder the depression anxiety body dysmorphia what about what was the time frame of, around when that was occurring so around 12 is when the body dysmorphia was in full force but i started you know getting a hold of like diet pills and things like that that's how i started with that by the time i was 14 i was a full-blown meth user but nobody knew like i hid to you know i i, I did it with just like one person in one group, not anybody in school. My family didn't know, nobody knew. And so um, I had a, a horse um, got sick and um, he colicked. And so horses, if they can't throw, they can't throw up. So if they're not pooping, you're in trouble. So I had walked this horse all morning and, um, <laughs> And this was my favorite horse. Like this, this horse was the love of my life. So this was a big deal. And I'm walking him and walking him and walking him and his guts, you know, twisted or whatever. And we got to a point where the vet was like, I think we're okay. So then um, I left and I ended up going to a friend's house who his dad was a cop and he did know that I did do drugs. And I ended up in an intervention that day. And it was maybe an hour or so later, my dad called and was like, you got to meet me on front street. We have to take this horse to Columbia. So the only place to have surgery like on a horse, this type of surgery was three hours away in Columbia, Missouri. And so I had to drive and meet him on front street. He had the horse, horses, you know, feeling good, but you got one shot. They go down, you're in trouble. And so anyway, uh, my friend's dad drove me there, put me in the truck and looked at my dad and said, don't let her out until she tells you everything. And so I, 
you know, driving along and this is already a terrible situation. And he's like, okay, what's up? You know, what do you have to tell me? And I'm like, I've done drugs every way I can. And uh, yeah, I'm a drug addict. And he's like, okay, my dad's super cool. My dad's attorney. He's super laid back. Couldn't ask for a better dad, but just chill. And he's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, guess I want to go to rehab. (laughs) I'm like, I guess I'll go to rehab. That time didn't work. And, you know, I, I, I was, none of that really worked out well for me. Um, I I was like, oh no, I'm fine now. I'm totally fine now. I wasn't, I I was back into it in no time. And then uh, it was, it was just like the one point I was like, yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm going to quit now. And then that, that's when I was getting into law school. And so I was like, okay, cool. I'm just, I'm just done now. This is what I, this was my whole journey through life. Cause ever since I was a kid, I was like, I'm going to go to law school. So I get there. I've now stopped doing all these drugs. And when I was in law school, like it was a whole nother deal because you didn't, you didn't have like the internet. You didn't, you couldn't get on the internet and find everything. You had to go to the library and get certain books. And like people were hiding books. Like, you know, when you had certain things do like the books aren't there and I'm like, ah, I kill these people. But it just, it wasn't for me. And I was like, you know what? I, I need to get a hold of my brain. I was having panic attacks. I was having to pull over on the side of the road. Like everything was like kind of coming to a head. And that's that's when I was like, okay, this is this is not for me. So I quit and I regret that desperately. I, I, like I, I would give anything to be able to go back and be like, don't you dare stop, just keep going. But I didn't, I quit it because I was like, now nah, go do something else. So that's when I got into real estate. And, uh, and I did well with real estate. But then, like I said, going into the div- divorce and the, situation i lost my mind completely and when and i had been clean for four years or i'm sorry four years my daughter was four years old and a year and a half two years before that so i'd been clean 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 oh i mean i'm still drinking but no drugs for like a good six and a half years really and so when i started back on drugs again in that time period it was by far i mean it was way wilder than any of my younger years like i mean i completely lost it like i was full-fledged like i you know you get older and you start buying stuff in bulk like you you know what i mean like we don't ever want to run out of it well i got to that point with drugs too and so i was getting large quantities of drugs and if i got down to like you know, an ounce or so, I thought I was running out and I was, I'd panic. So it was like, I had this like obsession of having drugs and I didn't share very well. Like I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like, I was like, absolutely not. I only have an ounce left. Like an ounce of meth. Are you serious? Like, so I had a very crippling, terrible addiction. Like it wasn't just like, yeah, I'm going to get high. I was so high. Like when I didn't have my daughter, I was a mess. And then when I would have her, here I am trying not, to, I'm not doing it, but I, and I think I'm doing the right thing, but I can barely get out of bed. You know what I mean? It just, it takes its toll. And I was on a whole new level when I, when I got back into drugs, it was, I don't know how I'm alive. And it got into a lot of crazy situations and which led up to my indictment. So I had an old truck the four wheel drive wasn't working. I had a guy over he was working on it. And, um, he was like, Hey, do you want to test drive this? And I'm like, sure. And so we took out, we were about a mile from my house and the cops pulled up on us and flipped their lights on. I'm in the country. Like there's not a lot of cops out here. So generally, I mean, like you don't see them that much. So Anyway, it's the middle of the night. We're we're getting ready to turn around to come back to the house. And the the cop rolls up, flips his lights on. And the guy's like, yeah, I'm wanted. I'm not stopping. And I'm like, whatever. (laughs) So anyway, whole car chase, but not. It was like the slowest, weirdest thing ever. Like the whole thing is so surreal. And it's so embedded in my brain. We didn't have any guns on us. We didn't have any drugs on us. There was nothing immediately done. There was no good reason for them to chase. It was all very strange. Anyway, we ended up taking this turn and I was like, yeah, I think this is a dead end. So when he turned around and came back up over the hill, it was a very dark area. There's a cop car off in the ditch. There's a cop out of the cop car and he's pointing a gun at the front of the truck. Well, he shot five times in the front of the truck. When you're in a receiving end of a, a 
gunshot, you don't necessarily hear it, but he shined a light into, um, into the, the car. He looked to see where I was, which I was in the passenger seat. He waited for the truck to come by. And then he shot five times at the back of my head. And it was a very tight pattern. I kept the glass. I took the glass out of the truck. I kept that piece of glass up until like last year. I finally let go of it. Cause I was just like, this is like, I would look at it. I was, I became obsessed with this. I mean, obviously it was a really big deal and I was really angry, but he shot five times at the back of my head. So we, there was two bullets in the, in my headrest, one in my head and two in the dash in front of me. None of them were anywhere near my, um, the driver, none. And so he was like, oh my God, they're shooting at us. And I was like, yeah, I just got shot. And I had my head, hand like this because I got shot right here in the back of the head. I said, yeah, I just got shot. And I went like that and blood just poured everywhere. And he was like, I have to get you to the hospital. I'm like, you're not going to get me anywhere. Like, <laughs> you're not, We're this is not going to work. So I jumped out at the, like, we were right by a stop sign. I just jumped out. I was like, just, I'm going. I don't know where you're going. I don't know where I'm going. I didn't know what I was doing at that point. And so here I am, I'm standing out there and I'm, I'm shot. Like I have a bullet in my head. It's not, it didn't go all the way through. It just pierced through my skull. But like I had this big bun on top of my head and it was like in a, a nest of hair, but I'll never forget the smell of the burning flesh and hair. Like I was, you could smell it, that smell. I will never forget it. So the day I died, but, uh, so the cops all rolled up on me and they're looking at me like I'm basically a circus animal. I'm like, I don't know how I was so coherent. I'm not really sure how this all worked out. Cause it all sounds like bullshit. You know what I mean? Like, so I'm like, Hey, is that your policy to shoot the passenger to stop the vehicle? Like explain to me how that works. And they're just looking at you're, me. They're like, huh? You're having this conversation like on the side of the road with a fresh bullet wound. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you're you're like you're you have the presence of mind to ask these questions. Yes, hmm. and I don't understand why. No, you know, to this day, I look back on it. I'm like that. You know, I I will I pick this situation apart so many times, and like I started to write about it, and then and I wrote a little bit about it, but like I feel like I need to write it all out so I can actually. I don't I don't understand it all. So yes, I'm having these conversations. I remember one cop had like a maxi pad and he kept trying to like put it on the wound. And I'm like, dude, what are you, what are you doing? And then the ambulance pulls up and the guy's like, okay, yeah, you do. That's, that does look like a bullet po poking out of your head. And I remember him asking me on the way to the hospital, he's like, do you think your hair stopped the bullet? And I'm like, that is the strangest question I've ever heard in my entire life. Okay. <laughs> whatever so i get to the hospital and the feds show up and they're asking me questions with a bullet still in my head and i'm yelling at everybody and i have blood from head to toe like i remember it rolling into my boot on the side of the road like i'm covered i look like a horror movie and um they're like no no it's just the the cops kept saying oh no it's just glass i'm like i can smell my flesh burning like i know it's a bullet like what are you talking about I did have a lot of glass in the back of my head, but I did have a bullet too. And it did not pierce all the way through my skull, but it, you know, it pierced into my skull. It was the strangest thing. It's a God thing. I firmly believe I'm here for something. Not sure yeah. where it's going to end up, but I mean, uh, you know, it's funny because I remember people being like, is there a support group for that? I was like, I think most people that have been shot in the head are dead. Like, I don't, there's not many people to talk to that's been through this type of thing. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so are you like when you're recant recounting all of this stuff and you're you're talking about these uh, th these incidents in your life i guess for lack of a better term um you know it's it sounds to me like you you're you're you've done it enough that you're just like kind of and then a and then b and then c and then d um do you ever get struck by uh kind of the audaciousness of it all or i don't know what the right word is but like this is an incredible like for all the things that you did that they could have picked you up for and and you you should have been fleeing and then the one time that you're just out checking on the four-wheel drive and, and yeah. not doing any of those things and then they could have just turned the lights on and the gentleman you were with could have just put you know there was all these things and it culminates in this 
and and I mean, we really haven't even started about talking about what you ended up going to jail for yet. This is just right. the kind of the lead up to to the like. There's so many things that had to just fit just so. Um, I guess you you just mentioned it. Like there's a there's something there's a higher power involved here. These things happened for a reason. Do you, yeah. Do you ever feel like you're just kind of a part of it, and you just at at that point in your life, you're just letting kind of things happen the way they're supposed to? At that point in my life, I was incredibly angry. I was so mad. I was just so angry. And I was angry because, you know, I have a very loving, supportive family, but they didn't really want to talk about this. Like normal people are not capable of talking about this. You know what I mean? Like it's uncomfortable. And I wanted, I needed to have conversations that they were not prepared to have. And, you know, looking, I wasn't mad at them. I was mad at the situation. I was mad because I was sick. I was in the hospital for a couple of days and then I was just out. And I probably should have been treated for concussion. Um, I had vision issues. I did go to an ophthalmologist, neurologist, and um, because I, I was missing a lot of my vision. Um, and so I go to this ophthalmologist, neurologist, and they're like, uh, I go in there and they kind of check me out and the next, and they're like, Hey, do you mind if we have some of our, uh, our students come in? And I'm like, yeah. And I hear them going down the hall. They're like, it's a GSW. It's a GSW. Get in here. It's a GSW. And I'm like, what's a GSW? Like, <laughs> what is that? What do you mean? And they're like, it's a gunshot wound. And I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah, it is. Isn't it? Yeah. Check okay, so. Cool. So they did, they, they dilated my eye. I, they sent me in this machine and like, I had to like mark all these areas where I, they were like, what's, what do you see? And so I had shaded in this piece of paper and given it to him. I'm like, these are all the spots that I believe I'm missing. And then I sat in this bowl for, I don't know how long it felt like forever. And I, uh, when it spit out the piece of paper of all the stuff that's missing, it matched perfectly up to what, so there was a lot missing. And um, I didn't really pursue that therapy and all the stuff that I should have done because I was still a drug addict. I was still, you know, even though I got shot in the head and all this stuff had happened, I still had people bringing drugs. To, like I was sick and I was, I was, I'd throw up all over. I was a mess. And, but I was like, but people would come by and bring me drugs. And I was like, cool, I'll just keep getting high. But let me back up. So when I was in the hospital, the feds did show up. And I was like, yeah, I know what time it is. You know, this is probably, this we're probably, there, for all the things that I could have been caught for and I should have been caught for and I was good for, it was my time. You know, the feds have a way of, you know, play, even in that playing field, like, you know, um, after I got shot, it was about five months after that I did have an indictment. And my investigation didn't start until the day after I was, in, I was shot. And so all the discovery came after that. So because of that, because I was sick, because I was, I may have done, been doing drugs, but I wasn't like out and about doing dumb things necessarily. Um, when they indicted me, I didn't, they didn't have, you know, they indicted me, uh, they arrested me. It was a big deal. There was lots of cops and they took me to, um, county and then on to the federal courthouse and i remember like you know you, you get pulled into this courtroom that's the most terrifying thing and then they put this thing down in front of you and it's the united states versus sabrina morgan and i'm like oh my god like that, what that's heavy huh that's heavy oh, like, it's ugly. When, you, when you read that that's like that's oh. heavy man there's Yes. And all of these counts. And I was at the top of the indictment, like the kingpin. And I'm like, oh, my God, what are you what are we going to do anyway? Um, but I remember the prosecutor standing up and, and the judge was like, OK, what evidence do you have? And he's like, uh, the judge was like, do you have any physical evidence? And the prosecutor was like, no. And he's like, do you have any hand to hand? And he's like, no. And he's like, do you have any wiretap? He said, no. He said, okay, what do you, he's like, I've got plenty of statements. And so all of the evidence against me was statements made by people, which is ghost dope. And that's well, what a lot of people don't know about is ghost dope. And that was, that's, so I read about ghost dope and, and the idea behind, um, you know, how credible 
how how somebody who would not be considered credible in any other circumstance in society is all of a sudden their words gospel when when it's yes. one addict against another addict or an addict against a, a a dealer but you you mentioned that you used to like just hold large quantities for your own sanity yes um and and i i think i meant i think you mentioned that you know you did deal drugs at at some point and Absolutely. so so but through all of that when you were buying carrying transporting large quantities even dealing you never had any opportunity any run-in there was no pressure from from law enforcement at any point up until this like it took all of this happening for you to kind of get on their radar well they had i mean they pulled me over and searched me several times never caught me I've, even after i got shot they came and searched my house looking for that guy and they didn't they didn't find anything they didn't find paraphernalia they didn't find any drugs they did find a 12 gauge my pink 12 gauge and uh that's and they took a picture of it and that's how i ended up um drug trafficking with the furtherance of a weapon from so are you that, telling me that that dude dropped you off at the four-way stop and got away from the cops at that point? Yeah, he got away for a little bit, and then they ca they caught up to him. Yeah, they did. Yeah, he as, got away as they do. But <laughs> yeah, he. I mean, I think I me standing there with a bullet in my head was probably enough. Diver like they just kind of all were like, nobody knew what to do or say. Like everybody's just kind of like, oh my god, she's alive and she has a bullet in her head and she's standing here with blood all over. Her. And it was really surreal, but so anyway, what I was indicted, um, I, you know, they sent me down, they've got this, this United States first Sabrina Morgan in front of me. And I'm like, oh my God, my life's over. Like, this is over. And I was like, okay, I am done with this life. I remember just sitting there. I'm in shackles and chains. I've, you know, I, I'm, I don't know. I, you know, I've not been to prison or anything before. And so um they put me back in a holding cell and then they transferred me to a federal holding and i was there for a couple days like two two nights and then they brought me back and uh to the courthouse and released me on pre-trial pre-trial release to my dad and so the next three years i'm on pre-trial release and i had an incredible po who was firm but incredible but helpful and empathetic and supportive he was amazing and he was like okay he's like let's it, you know that dude called everything down the wire and he was straight with me about everything and he's like what do you think about some rehab and i was like dude i went to rehab before it didn't work none of that stuff worked for me but i was like I i'm ready to do whatever because at this point i was like you're done you're not drinking, you're not doing anything. Like I had this full on conversation when I was in federal holding with myself. I'm like, I'm done, it's over. No matter what happens, no matter what transpires, this is the end. No more drugs, no more bullshit. And no more double life. At this point, I'm like, okay, I'm done. I, I'm, I'm, I don't have to lie about this anymore. It's in the newspaper, it's in this, it, you know, people know about this, like I can't hide. I am a big drug addict. And so now it's time to change. Like, there's no more hiding. So anyway, he was like, all right, what do you think about rehab? And I'm like, let's do it. You know, it never worked before, but I'll give it a shot. And so I, he set me up with a rehab, which is Rediscover and Lee Summit. And they were really great. Um, it wasn't like the previous rehab where they, all they did was talk about drugs all day long. Like this was a little bit different because they wanted to get to the root of the problem. Like what's going on with you? Like what leads to this? So. I, I did outpatient rehab for um, all week long. I had the weekends off and I'd come home at night. Um, but, and then I'd also do like some AA meetings, NA meetings, which they're, no, they're not for me. It, it was a train wreck. <laughs> I could do a whole podcast on stories from that. I finally got to the point where I called him and I was like, listen, I don't think this is for me. Like, this is not working. He's like, you gotta do whatever you gotta do. He's like, you're doing good. So preach call was good it was the most it, it was incredibly stressful it was arguably the most stressful time in my life i thought i mean you know it was hard because you know you talk to normal people that have never been involved with the feds and like you're doing so good you've done rehab i did a nine-month rehab program 
They're like, you're doing all this stuff. Like you're doing really good. They're not going to send you to prison. And then I ran into an old friend who had been through the federal system. And he was, I, I lifted with him every single day. And he was like, you're going to prison. I don't care what any of these people say. I want you to stop listening to everybody. You're going to listen to only me. You're going to prison. You're going to do some time. You have ugly charges. You're going to do time. They're going to give you maybe a little bit of a break because you're first timer because of whole, your whole situation, but you're going to prison. And so I'm like, what? And he was like, you know, he talked to me just straight out. Matter of fact, this is what's going to happen. These are the people you're going to encounter. And it was interesting because I I'd get real irritated with people and I'd be like, oh my God, listen to what this person did. And he's like, I don't get it. He just looked at me like, I don't get it. I'm like, which part don't you get? Like, what do you mean you don't get it? He's like, it doesn't matter. None of this stuff matters. And I got to where that kind of got into my head. He's like, people would tell me stuff and I'm like, I don't get it. Like, it's, none of that matters. And I'm like, oh my God, I, I, I've been groomed. It's good. But I mean, I'm like, oh wow, this is, this is finally getting in my brain. And it was really interesting because, you know, he helped me through. I, he was my one person. Like when I was from 2014, 2017, there wasn't anything on the internet about going to federal prison. There wasn't a community where you could be like, Hey, you know, have you been to prison? Like what, tell me about your life. Tell me about, you know, what does pretrial look like? What does re-entry look like? That wasn't there. And I searched the internet to the, the end of time, trying to find something and I didn't, I couldn't find that. He was the only one that would really tell me straight out how it was going to be. And so, um, anyway, um, I, three years on pretrial, they were telling me that they were going to supersede and I, on a superseding indictment, they generally add more people or charges or whatever. And generally when they do that, you're looking at another six months on pretrial. It's going to take a while to get that done. So it was like May of 2017, and they're telling me that it's probably going to get continued. So I'm like, okay, well, it's not going to happen this year, probably. And the next thing I know, they're like, no, uh, you're going to have to take your plea. And I'm like, okay, well, the state of Missouri, if you're, if it's a federal case, a federal drug case, when you take your plea, you will turn yourself into the federal marshals and go into federal holding while you wait sentencing. And a lot of people don't realize that. And I don't know, I think my lawyer told me that probably more than once, but I chose not to hear that. That wasn't what I was trying to hear. Cause I'm like, how are you gonna hold somebody if they have not been convicted, but they don't care. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the next, and so I, was, I thought I was taking my plea, like from that day, I was like, okay, I'm taking my plea in three weeks. And the next thing I know, it was like a week later, like a week or so later, and I'm like, I have a house and a kid and animals. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> but it was a blessing because um, I needed that Band-Aid ripped off. And what I didn't know is that once I turned myself into the, took my plea, turned myself into the marshals, there was an, it was still scary because I didn't know what my sentence was going to look like. But at the same time, there was a little sense of relief getting into federal holding. And federal holding was weird. It was a very strange space because you're surrounded by people that are all, they all have the most uncertain futures of anybody. Like nobody knows what they're going to get. Federal holding is a very weird place. All of these people are sitting there waiting for their sentencing and you're watching people go to court and come back with 10, 20 year sentences and people are, you know, the people that get 10 year sentences, they're doing backflips because they're so excited that they only got 10 years. And you think 10 years, like you're cool with, like you're happy with that. And it changes your perspective on a lot of things. Mind you, federal holding, you had, like we had cells. So, you, you know, it was, it was maximum security. It wasn't, a camp and it wasn't anything easy. It was, it was pretty serious, but I had a cell to myself for the most part. There was a couple of times where I had a roommate, but not for very long. Most of the time I had a cell to myself for the first time in my life. I sat with my trauma and I sat with my feelings and I 
finally started like thinking about like who I was because I'd never, you know, in out in the world, you have TV, you have people, you have telephones, you have all of this stuff. And for the first time ever, I started processing this stuff. I'd been a really dark person. And when I got to federal holding, I got saved. There was a, there was a um, chaplain there that was really cool. I had a friend that was, you know, she had similar charges to me and I was like, yeah, whatever. I'm not into any of this stuff. And then she started telling me gangster versions of Bible stories. And I'm like, okay, this is fun. And there's not much else to do. So you start reading the Bible. Anyway, I got saved and I have an amazing relationship with God today. And I'm a much calmer person. And, you know, a lot of people look down on people that are like, oh, you got jailhouse religion. But I mean, I had a really interesting situation and I watched a lot of people change for the better. And and it got me through that one year in federal holding. I worked out a lot. I did a lot. You know, I there was a creative writing class that I, I, I took and I really liked. And I, I wrote extensive stories about this, oh, this obese bee that was on the rec yard. Like I would watch this bee the whole time I was out there, <laughs> a bumblebee. Yes. But, um, I realized how much I liked writing. And so I got, uh, finally I was there for a year and then I was sentenced and I got a nine year sentence. And, um, I was like, the, I felt like I remember my sentencing day kind of, I remember flashes, you know, when you're in a really traumatic moment. I don't know about anybody else, but I remember it in flashes. Like after I got shot in the head, I remember everything up to when they pulled the bullet out and then everything else is flashes after that. Anything traumatic, any of my traumatic, super traumatic times, it starts becoming flashes. And that's how sentencing was. I don't, I had to ask my lawyer afterwards. I'm like, what was my sentence? Cause it was just flashes. You know, you have to stand up and read your statement. And my, the courtroom was full of all the people that I love. And they had to hear me read this statement and, you know, be accountable for everything. And it was really hard. Like it was horrible. It makes me sweat to think of it even today. So this is the first time as an adult where you've kind of had the ability and the tools to go all the way back to like when you were young, like back when you were kind of first experiencing anxiety, depression, body dysmorphia, like there, it, what, not that there's huge resources out there for kids today, but it's at least something that's talked about. It, it really probably wasn't then. And mm -hmm. then you, you live this life of, of in and out of addiction and all these different other things going on, motherhood, a, a marriage, the marriage falling apart, um, college, dropping out of college, the career in real estate, um, all while managing, you know, various states of addiction and and um and now you've got this opportunity and you're kind of standing there you know in this very vulnerable time reading this in front of the court there's no like you say there's no secrets anymore everybody understands exactly what you are at this point in your life um did you did you like did that ever become too heavy like did you ever have to kind of just take a deep breath a step back and say how did i get here and and where am i going to go from here all the time there was too many of those days i i had a lot of those days where it was just too heavy um there was there was so many that that year in federal holding there was you know if i can endure that one year of federal holding wondering what my sentence is going to be and having that that scary feeling of what could happen on the outsides and my family and there's nothing I can do. And am I ever going to see anybody again? Like, are my parents still going to be alive? Are my dogs going to be alive? Is, what is my kid going to be like when I get out? Like, is she going to even like me? And you go through those things over and over and over again to the point where like you, you have to compartmentalize just a little bit and federal holding. You're so it's, such a concentrated deal where you're you're there with yourself whether you like it or not like you can read a book or you can work on yourself and i think i was like you know what now's the time like i gotta figure myself out and i'm a fairly interesting creature so i mean this will give me something to do i mean this isn't gonna be over real quick I, this is gonna take a lifetime so um 
so that started in federal holding and I, I was working out a ton. I, I mean, I was like the burpee queen and I would do all these hit workouts and do all this crazy stuff. And then um, I, after my sentencing, I stayed in federal holding for another month. And then I, um, there, it was time for me to go to prison, prison to camp. And I remember when they came by and they were like, Hey, you're going on con air tomorrow. And I'm like, I'm kind of cool here. They're like, what do you mean? I was like, I don't really feel like going. And they're like, you want to go to prison. Like, it's so much better there. I'm like, you know, I'm okay right here. Like once sentencing was over, once I had my in, you know, the end date, I was like, I'm cool. Now I'm good right here. It's fine. And then <laughs> I left, I, I did, I took my trip on Con Air, ended up at, at Oklahoma City. And um, I was in Oklahoma City Transfer Center for a week. So in the feds, when you leave federal holding, you're either taken by bus or plane to a transfer center. Generally, you stay at that at the transfer center is when they tell you where you've been designated, what prison you're going to be at. And so I fly there. I get off the plane. We have shackles and chains on. We shuffle up the, the runway and then onto these weird boxes where they take your shackles off and then they put you in a holding cell. Then they take you down, strip you down, dress you out and you walk out the door and they're like, okay, this is where you're going to go to prison. It's a weird experience because you've been on Con Air all day with the federal marshals. They circle the plane with the guns and everything. And, you know, it's a very strange experience, especially for females, because the females sit at the front of the plane and the men are all in the back. And of course I can't, I have the bladder of a small child. So I'm like, yep, I'm going to have to pee. And I, I had on these giant pants that had like zip ties on them. I mean, like, there, I was like, I'm going to need some, it was so weird. The whole thing was so surreal. But um, when they told me where I was going, they're like, yeah, you're going to go to Pekin Satellite Camp. And I was like, a camp? They're going to let me go to a camp? You know, after looking at like my discovery and everything, I was like, I apparently I thought I was a real gangster. because I was like, you're going to send me to a camp? But they did. They sent me to a camp. And I, um, so they then it was like four o'clock in the morning i think it, like a week later they they're like okay it's time to take your trip of course we flew all over the country and then landed in rockford illinois and then it was very weird because the plane lands you've been in shackles and change and max security and you're like you don't know how to be any other way so when you get off the plane if you're going to a camp they put you in these little vans and as soon as a plane pulls away, they take all your shackles and chains off. And it's the strangest thing because you're like, is this safe? Like, you know what I mean? Like, you don't know anymore. You're just like, um, is this a good idea? Like, are we okay? And they're like, you're fine. And in federal holding, you don't have mirrors, really. Like, you have like a really rough, like you're looking into a stainless steel fridge or something. So you don't really see yourself. So um they're like okay we're gonna stop at a rest stop and i'm like what so we, we stop and they're like go to the bathroom and i'm like you want me to walk in there like i'm okay i'm i like there's no are we okay here and they're like go to the bathroom and i'm like okay and i walk in and there's a full-length mirror and i looked at myself and i looked behind me and i didn't recognize myself it was a really interesting moment that's kind of burned in my brain. Um, I had lost like 66 pounds in federal holding and my hair was really long and I was really gray. I have gray hair, <laughs> color it a lot. Federal holding, you can't color it. I had gray hair like down to here and I did not know who I was. Like I had, I, I looked, I don't know how many times, like, and it was one of the most crazy moments of the whole journey was that mirror. I'll never forget it because I didn't know that was me. I thought it was somebody else. And it was so strange. That part of the journey was the strangest. So so you're you're reintegrating and and it's funny because we usually talk about reintegrating once you're done and and now you're just going in and you're kind of coming out of federal holding and you're trying to understand what you know what the rules of engagement are going to be while you serve your sentence and and these you're, you're starting off on this you know really unique foot um it's it's going to be less security than you were anticipating you're you're getting re into uh 
you know, intimated with yourself again, trying to understand who you are, you know, 60 pounds, your hair, all these different things. Um, did you have a really firm grasp on what you thought you were going to need to do to get through this next nine years period of your life? Like, did you, were you, were you emotionally and, and spiritually ready for the next step, even if you didn't know, you know, if it was a step up, step down or, or where that other foot was going to land? No, I don't think you're ever really ready for that. Spiritually, I felt really good and I held on to my working out and all of that. Um, I was like, well, I mean, if all else fails, I'll just work out for nine more years. You know what I mean? Like that, I guess if all else fails, I'll read the Bible, I'll pray a whole bunch and I'll do some burpees. And then, I mean, I'll just do that every day until the end. And that was like, I mean, whenever, whenever anything got rough, that was my whole ritual. That's what I did. That, and that would get me through the day. And then I'd be so tired. I would pass out and get up and hope for another, a better day. But, um, you know, going to camp, it, it was like reintegrating because there's no fence and there's just, you know, my PO in the beginning told me, he's like, you're going to go to a camp. There's going to be no fence. There's just going to be painted yellow lines that you don't cross. And that's, and it's going to look like a college dorm. And then you're going to come home. You know, you're going to go for a while. And then you're going to come home and you're going to, you're, you're going to go back to your family. And I'm like, that sounds way too simple. And then when I got that nine year sentence, I was like, yeah, he wasn't completely right on that, but okay. You know, I did end up at a camp. So I was like, okay, that's a blessing. So, um, yeah, it, it, you know, it's really interesting, but like my brother came to visit me, um, when I was at camp. And he, but he visited me in federal holding. But when I got to camp, he was like, you know, you re, you have a really interesting story. You should really write about it. You should start writing. I think it would help you mentally. And I think, it, you know, it could really help down the road. Like you should, he's like, you should write a book. He's like, but don't do it like that. He's like, you should write blogs and I'll publish them. And then, you know, eventually those, those blogs can become chapters in a book, which obviously you'll write more and fill it out. But she's like, you know, that you could do that. And I'm like, what's a blog? So he sent me some blogs, some examples. And so um, every Monday I would pick a topic and I would write on it all week long. You know, I worked during the day and I ran the gym at night, but I always found time to write. I would always write, like at least my goal was to write 250 words. So I never worked out like that because I'm wordy, I'm lengthy. I, have to, I talk too much. So I'm like, I write just like I talk, just writing. Um, I, the books that I read in prison were all about habit and they were all about, you know, um, bettering myself, self-help books, psychology books. And I mean, I was psychotic. I was so hyper-focused on habits and I was obsessed with these books that I, would focus on every single move that I made through the day. Is this where I'm going? I would set my intentions every morning. And, you know, as the day would go by, people would be like, Hey, why don't you come watch this movie with us? And I'm like, I would think to myself, is that where I want to, is that where I'm trying to go? Like, is that going to better me? Is that getting me to where I need to go? Do I need to write or do I need to go do another workout? What do I need to do? And I was so, I reprogrammed myself there. I, I, I was not this person before at all. And that reprogramming is still there today. I still wake up and I still have like, what are my intentions for today? What am I going to do today? That's going to better myself and point me in the right direction. Like I'm still doing that same stuff as I'm brushing my teeth, just like I was in prison, same time in the morning and everything, brushing my teeth. What am I doing today? You know, being very intentional about everything that I'm doing. I, I don't know. I don't know how I would ever have gotten here had it not been for everything that I went through. So no matter how traumatic it was, like I have such a, I found peace in prison. Like I, prison was the most peaceful time of my life. And I thought I was going to get nine years there, but instead, uh, here comes the COVID to town. And the next thing I know, the administration's coming in and they're like, okay, um, we're going to start releasing some people at their 50% mark. And we're like, what? You want to talk about complete mass chaos. Have administration walk into a prison and tell people tell people there's going to be a list of people that are going home. Mass chaos. And so um, they did. They started letting people out on the CARES Act. They were sending them home to home confinement. And 
I didn't qualify for the first step act because of my gun case, my gun charge. And because of that, I just assumed I wouldn't qualify for the cares act either. So I really didn't get my heart set on it. I stayed with that frame of mind that I was going to do nine. I was going to be there for nine years. I was like, don't get off in that because you know, when the first step backpacks, I was like, Oh good. I'm going to get some time off and then find out that I have a gun charge that eliminates me from getting that credit. So, um, when I got to my 50% mark, they, they called me in before I'd even hit my 50% mark. And they're like, Hey, we're going to do your paperwork for the cares act. And I'm like, what? I, was, I thought it's not even my 50% mark. So anyway, um, I go in, I do my paperwork, didn't think anything about it. Um, you know, I, I wanted to get excited, but I didn't tell anybody, like I told my dad, I was like, this is happening, but do not like, I don't believe let's not, let's not put any weight on this at all. If it happens, great. If it doesn't great, but at the same time, let's, let's be just mindful that this is happening. And he was like, okay, cool. We didn't really talk to anybody. didn't really say much. I just let it be. And this was in February. So April was my 50 mark. And then, and I didn't hear anything. And I was like, yeah, they're probably not letting me out. And then it was like May 4th, I went to work. I was down in the warehouse and my case manager came down and got me. And he was like, pack your shit, you're leaving. And this was four years into it. You know what I mean? Like I'm almost at my four year mark. And I'm like, what? Everything that the whole journey was like, let's just rip the bandaid off. Like it never seemed to go at the, you know, at the time that I thought it was going, it was like, nope, you're going now. I'm like, okay. So at that time we had to be in a quarantine, you know, for however long because of COVID. And so, um, I went into quarantine and, um, I was supposed to get out. I think it was May 25th, 25th or 26th. Um, I didn't believe it. I didn't, even, even though it was sitting in quarantine, I didn't believe it. I was like, something's going to happen. Something, something's wrong. Something's going to go wrong. I just know it. And so I only told my parents, I didn't really talk to a lot of people. Like there was maybe like one or two other people, but I was like, do not tell anybody that this is a possibility that this is even remotely happening. Like we don't need to talk about this. Oh, my, my ex-husband had taken my daughter to Florida and completely cut ties with my whole family. So I didn't have a lot of communication with her. She would hide and talk to me quite a bit, but you know, I didn't tell her there was times I got to talk to her, but I did not tell her any of this was happening. I didn't tell just my parents pretty much. And so, um, it got to May 25th and I had, it was seven 30 that morning. I'd given my stuff away. They had shut my phone off because in feds, when you're getting ready to leave, they shut your phone and email off. So I'm like, they shut everything down the night before. And I'm like, okay, I guess this is happening. So I give all my stuff away. And at 7.30, here comes the administration. They're like, Morgan, you need to come with me. And I was like, I am not going. And so they, I was like, you want me to walk out of quarantine? Cause you know, in the, in the COVID era in prison, it was so weird. Cause like they would have you in these like plastic bubble things. And so I was like, you want me to walk out of quarantine? I'm like, yeah, this is bad. He's like, grab your mask and come up here. And so I, wa I was walking with him. I was like, I'm not going home, am I? And he's like, we're going to work through this. So just stay calm. And I was like, I just held on to those words. I'm like, okay. So I walk in, my case manager's like, don't panic. There's been a glitch. There's been a paperwork issue at the halfway house. Just be calm. We're going to work through this. He's, she's like, I've got another halfway house that's going to take you, but it's going to take a little bit to get the paperwork done. And I'm like, my parents are here. They've driven all the way to Kansas from Kansas city to get me my phone shut off. Like, and she's like, use the phone. So I call my dad, he's at the hotel. And I'm like, I'm not coming home today. And he's like, okay. I was like, there's a problem with the halfway house. They're put me at another halfway house. It's going to take about a week to get this done. He says, well, I guess this was just a practice trip. That's okay. And I'm like, God, God bless you. Yeah. you know, that's great. But, um, you, you know, I was a mess. I, that happens a lot in prison where, you know, dates get moved. It's one thing for a date to get moved. I saw a lot of people get their dates pulled and, you know, you see that one time and you're, you're messed up for the rest of the time. And I did late, I left June 1st of 2021 after doing, um, just less than four years. Um, and then I started my home confinement, which I'm still on. It's been 28 months. And so I'm still, I'm on home confinement right now. And what that, 
that's another really weird space. Um, I mean, like, I just, it just seems like each pro each part of this process is just so weird. I hadn't made a plan for reentry because I didn't think I was going to be out until 25. And so there was no part of me that was like, oh, you know, nowadays people are in these support groups and they're like making plans for when they get out. And I'm like, that's amazing. Like, I didn't even wrap my brain around the fact that I was going to prison, let alone like what I was going to do when I came out. So I got out, I went to my parents' house for the first year. And um, so on home confinement, it's a really interesting deal because you have to have a halfway house monitor you. Well, there's not a federal halfway house in Kansas City, Missouri for some reason, which is weird. Um, so I have to drive about 88 miles one way to go to my halfway house to do my check-in. And you have to, so during COVID time, it was like once a month. As the restrictions lifted, it was twice a month. And now it's once a week. And so you got to drive there, do your UA and check in with the case manager and all of your movements have to be scheduled in advance. Now I, I'm a rep for, I sell barns, barnuminiums and custom homes for UTCUT's instructors and I love it. It's the greatest job. They're amazing people. And it gives me, you know, I can go visit, I can go to customers' houses, I can go to job sites, I can go to the office. So I have a lot of freedom with that. But if it's anything outside the realm of work, then you have to um, have it scheduled a week in advance. And so, like, you can only have seven movements a week outside of work and programming. The gym is programming, church is programming, things like that. And um, so it, it's, it's complicated, but it's not. Like, you get into a routine. But, you know, when I went into prison, I was under the constant fear that something was going to happen to my parents or my daughter, and I couldn't be there for it. And I'm still in that headspace where I'm still constantly panicked that something's going to happen and I can't get to them or I can't, you know, I have a nine o'clock curfew. So there's not a lot of room for, you know, emergencies. Um, but I do have great friends and I have a whole lot of support, you know, that have helped me out tremendously through this situation. But um, sorry, well, I, would, I would think the way that everything has happened for you very quickly rip the bandaid off. We've said it a couple times. It would kind of be hard to keep the faith that yes. a, an abrupt turn isn't just around the corner, right? Like it seems like yes. every every time something's going good, it's like but we've seen how quickly the machine can take this all over and just change the direction, right? You're absolutely right. But here's where I keep the faith. Every turn has been a better one. You know what I mean? Like every abrupt turn, every abrupt change has been another step in the right direction. And so being on home confinement, you, you've got some extra time. And so that's how I started. My, I remember my, my daughter was visiting me. She's now with me full time. She's, as soon as she turned 18, she moved in with mama. But um, I remember her flipping through her phone and I'm watching her, you know, I'm coming out of prison and I'm like, just starting to work a smartphone again and she's flipping through something and I'm like, what is that? Like, what are you watching? It's, it's just short videos. Like what? I don't understand. She's like, it's TikTok. And I'm like, what is TikTok? And she's like, just download it on your phone. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. And then finally one day I'm like, all right, let me see. So I put it on there and I'm like, some of this is so dumb. Like who's, they're just dancing and like lip singing. Like, this is stupid. And then I started getting to the prison community and I was like, these are my people. This is my tribe. You know what I mean? And like, I'm watching some of it and I'm like, man, I mean, I wish I would have had this before I went to prison or, you know, coming out, like listening to people's stories. I think people's stories are so powerful. You know, people that have come through and they've, they've got a, a comeback story. Like I love a comeback story. And when I was in prison doing all my writing, I was basically writing my own comeback story. And it's interesting because, you know, I come out of prison and I have all these blogs already published because my brother would publish them all for me. And so, you know, when people Google me, they don't just see a pile of meth anymore. They see my blogs or they see my social media and it all kind of com compiles together. I, you know, I'd really like, I, I've done a little bit of speaking, but it's something that I want to do. As soon as the ankle bracelet comes off, that's, that's what I intend to do more of. Um, and I was blessed to be able to, um, I got a fellowship with dream.org, which is the group that, uh, did the first step act. And now they're working on the equal act. Um, and so in this fellowship, I'm learning about lobbying and things like that. 
And my project is to try to get a federal halfway house in Kansas City because, you know, once the First Step Act passed and then like the CARES Act, there's a lot of people relying heavily on a halfway house, whether you're on home confinement or if you're at halfway house, we need more halfway houses and we need better programming and things like that. And so that's kind of my mission right now is to try to get, um, I can't just walk away and just turn my back and be like, okay, it's over. So I feel like, I feel like I have to do something. I feel like I have to be a voice for people that don't have one. And um, no matter what that, I don't know what that's going to look like at the end of the day completely, but I'm just doing the best I can. Like there's a lot of people that are about to go to a federal prison and they don't have people. And it's the most scary alone time that I remember in my life because I didn't, because nobody could really connect with me. There was just that one person that connected with me and was like, no, this is how it's going to be. And so I, I will message people. If they message me, I'll just give them my phone number and I'll chat with them. I'm like, tell me your situation. Let me talk you through this. On my drives back and forth to work and stuff, I'm normally chatting with people that are about to go to prison and I'm like, you're going to be okay. You're going to come back out. And there's a whole nother life on the other side to me thinking, what do you want to do when you come back out? Like, cause it's not over. None of it's over. It's not the end. I mean, I, for me, prison was such a positive experience and it sounds so weird when those words come out of my mouth, but it was an incredibly positive situation because for the first time I got to learn who I was. I was all by myself, you know, and it's a level playing field. You have all these people that are all wearing the same clothes. Nobody's driving cars. You know, you're all in the same, you're all at ground zero. Everybody yeah. is. It's powerful. The one piece I read about in one of your one of your blog posts that um I, I find interesting and i feel like not enough people fully understand and i i, I want to understand your I, I think i understand what you meant i'd like you to just explain it to me like i'm a five-year-old to see if i'm right <laughs> is you 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 equate the or you, you differentiate pardon me the war on drugs between the war on um, mental disorders. And, and you talk about the anxiety and the depression and all the, the mental things that you had going on. And then, and then, you know, nobody wants to say we're gonna have a war on depression because of the connotation to it. But to have the war on drugs, I mean, that sounds like a noble pursuit that, you know, might even get somebody elected. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like the, it's no secret that the United States has done a colossally terrible job of incarceration and integration afterwards I, I i like i mean i'm not i'm canadian i'm not i just what i see is is there's so many people in for-profit prisons that yeah. get dumped out at the end of the street when they're done with their 75 bucks and whatever the release and 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 then we sit back and go i can't believe there's so many people that reoffend. like what's what's wrong with these people and right. when you said the difference between war on drugs and the war on mental disorder you know, a person might go spend 10 years in prison and become clean and, but they do nothing for the mental disorder. Then when they come out, they're not, they're not struggling with drugs anymore. That was just the symptom that landed them in jail. It's the mental disorder. And when, when you, when I read that, I thought to myself, man, like that's something that you could start a program on. You could start saying, this is what, as someone who's been through all sides of it, um, why don't we start here? Yes. I, 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 mean, I don't know if there's a question there. I just, I was, <laughs> like when you said it, I was just like, that makes so much sense. And, and there's gotta be somebody around you that, that, you know, can say you're on the right track or not. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know what, I'll have to bounce that off my, my dream.org fellowship folks. I'll be like, Hey, listen, what do you think about this? That's what I do anymore. I'm like, Hey guys, what do you think? What are your thoughts on this? Um, but yeah, I mean, the war on drugs was never about drugs. You know, it's a war on people. It's a war on mental disorders. You know, it's just, you know, you think, I think back, I'm 46. So I think back to like TV commercials growing up. It was always a drug commercial. You know, there, there was a period of time where maybe it wasn't, but like you get into like my teenage years, it was every single commercial you watch the nightly news and the, every single commercial is a drug commercial we've groomed all these people to think that okay you have this symptom and you can take this pill and it's going to make you feel better and if it makes you feel better and, and a doctor gave it to you then you're fine 
But that translates difference into people, like people that have mental disorders and problems. If they find a drug that makes them comfortable in their own skin, whether it be legal or illegal, they're going to do it. And they're going to do it until it becomes unhealthy, probably. <laughs> but Yeah. So, and, so what is, like, throughout various points in your life, and, and this is kind of always at the end when we talk to somebody, at the end of their story, at the end when they're talking about what they're trying to do now, um, I'm always, I always reflect back on what we've talked about in the last 45 minutes or an hour. And I, I, I you know, first time we've ever had a conversation like this. So you, I'm using my, uh, you know, the, the first impressions on these various things to understand, you know, what was driving you when you were a 12 year old girl and what was driving you when you were getting ready to go to college and all the way along. And, and I'm curious now, after all of this that we just talked about is behind you and you're sitting there, you know, like you say, you're talking about when the bracelet comes off. It's like, that's the part of your life you're looking forward to now. What what was your idea of success at various other points in your life versus today? And, and what's the difference um, between those points of view? What's driving you towards what you think success looks like today? That's a really interesting question. So when I was 12, I was I was driven to show horses and to win win ribbons and prizes. That was my whole drive. I had a passion for that. You know, the older me was I thought success was going to law school and being a lawyer. And then I I had like I'd failed at that, you know, one way or another. I had failed at that. I did good with the horses, but I, you know, I kind of moved on from there. And then um from that point forward, I couldn't tell you what I thought success looked like until probably right now. Cause like from that, you know, from that point forward, it's just, it's such a mess. I mean, I wanted to be a good mom. I wanted to do so many things. And, you know, if you talk to my daughter today, she's like, no, you're a really good mom. I'm like, you're full of shit, but that's okay. But, <laughs> but, um, but today success to me is, um, being able to help other people kind of navigate this journey because there are so many people that are either going into prison or coming out of prison and there's so many needs um the halfway house is just one of them like re-entry groups and better ways of processing grief and trauma and really you know I would like to be able to work with juveniles and and really you know talk kids that are like you know going through a lot of stuff I would like to be able to talk to them, but at the end of the day, a goal for me is to do a TED talk. I would love to do a TED talk. Sabrina Morgan was an incredible guest. I'll tell you, you know, me and her had a, a discovery call about two weeks before we sat down, and and the things that that woman has lived through and been on the other side to talk uh, to talk about, tell the story about, incredible. She's just uh, got an incredible way to articulate everything. Um, she she remembers so much in such vivid detail. Uh, the smell of the, her hair burning after after that cop was shooting at her. That was something that jumped out to me. I just thought it was an incredible uh, description of the events. But, it, you know, she's she's talking about the things that are important to her now, and that's rehabilitating and getting people to understand what goes on in the criminal justice system in the United States. And I think that's a very noble pursuit. Another great show. We're just so excited to keep bringing these to you. You know, we've got a couple of really good ones in the hopper, and we're just excited to keep bringing them to you. And we always want to make sure that we're we're doing um, we're we're bringing you guys what you want to hear. So if you have any any feedback or if you want to reach out on Instagram or TikTok or or here on the show page, feel free to do it. We love to hear from you. As we say, there are no wrong answers. There's no test at the end. So make the most out of every day. The Second Act Podcast would like to thank Ben Sound for the intro and outro music. Happy Rock. We would also like to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, subscribe, and give us any feedback you can. Thanks for listening.